0: So today we are concluding our series, Kiss the Sun, and uh, 25 weeks in the Psalms. Uh, We kind of broke it up a little bit, but I hope that this series has been insightful and given you a better understanding of the book of Psalms, at least the ones that we've looked at here. Uh, But more than anything, what I hope that you've taken away from this is Christ in the Psalms. I, I really hope that that has really stuck out to you, that you've seen how these psalms lead us to Christ and that we see him in these psalms. And that's really been the intention that we've had all along with this series more than anything else. It's good to learn who writes these psalms. It's good to learn the settings of these psalms. It's good to learn how they apply to our lives, but we need to see Christ in them in order for us to even begin to apply them to our lives. So I hope that it has been a blessing to you. And at some point in time, I'm not sure when. Uh, we will likely return to the Psalms, uh, maybe pick up with Psalm 26, but um, you you literally could spend years and years in the book of Psalms. But today we are looking at Psalm 25, and the message is entitled, How God Guides Us. And we will see that as believers, when we need guidance, uh, we can trust our God to lead us because we know his character and we know his ways. And we have a relationship with him. And I've been thinking a lot about how trust is is earned. I had a conversation with Mike and Kelsey a few weeks ago, and Kelsey talked about how trust is developed in relationship, and that's so true. Even with our relationship with the Lord, how do we learn to trust Him? Well, you are not going to learn to trust Him by having some uh, distant um, connection to Him. Maybe just a, just you know, you're you're an Easter and Christmas. Christian, you know, the, those who attend church on only Easter or Christmas. So likely you would not be here today if that's you. Um, but if, if that's you, you're not going to know this God. You're not, you're not going to have a relationship if, if you only place him in a position of, yeah, I'll, I'll fulfill my obligations a couple times a year and then I'm good. Then I'm just going to go about my life. So you're never going to develop that trust that you you would need to have in that relationship. It can only develop within the context of relationship. And so it's, it's more than just even Sundays and Wednesdays. It's more than just being part of a grace group. It's more than just all these other things that we do. It's a personal relationship. And that's where you develop your trust in the Lord. And that's what David had. And that's what we're going to see today. As we unpack this psalm, we're going to see a couple things. Uh, first, we're going to see or what we're going to... The point, I guess, the first point is knowing David and ourselves. And the second point is knowing God and his ways. And so let's read Psalm 25. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this series that we've had to uh, see Christ in the Psalms and all the wonderful truths that you've shown us, Lord. I ask that as we again come to your word and, and hear of what this psalm is all about, that you would open our hearts to receive from you. Guide us, Lord, as this psalm is about. Guide us in, in your ways. Guide us in your truth, Lord lead us in your paths, whatever they may be. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are near to us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so knowing David and ourselves. Psalm 25 is about struggle. You can kind of hear it as we read through there. It can be easy to view these psalms, as I've often done, as like perfectly composed songs and psalms and poems, all these wonderful things. And when we set them to music, they make for wonderful times of worship. You know, we, we sing songs that are based on the psalms all the time in our, our worship here at Grace Life. Sometimes you don't even know they're based on the psalms. It's just a line here or there. And, and they seem perfect, like they seem well composed and all those things. Uh, But when we're reading these psalms, especially psalms of prayer like the one that we're looking at today, we are seeing really the inner life of the author. And for us this morning, that's David. Much of what we've seen, Psalm 1 through 25, has been David. Um, But we're really getting a peek into the inner life of the psalmist. And David here is expressing his struggle and longing in a way that we can likely relate to, even if we can't directly relate to his circumstances. We can relate to the feelings that he has uh, as he put pen to paper, he is pouring out his heart. He is writing what's within him, and so it does definitely appear to be, you know, a wonderful psalm, a good psalm to sing, a good psalm to pray. Uh, but let's let's remember that this is really coming from his heart. It's it's deeper than just "Help me, O Lord." It's an it's a cry of anguish. It's a, pray, a prayer that is really coming from the depths of within him. So David is wrestling with a number of, of adversities in this psalm. There are unnamed enemies, a need of guidance, loneliness, and guilt. And all these things are troubling David. And this psalm is his prayer in the midst of that struggle. As we look at the text, we could break up the passage in a way to show David's situation, David's need... David's belief of who God is, and David's feelings. In the first three verses, David is stating the situation. David is concerned about his enemies and his faults, and he's trusting the Lord alone to deliver him. Now, we may not be able to identify with David in this specific struggle. Most of us have never and may never deal with someone trying to steal away our kingdom. Most likely, we'll never deal with that. Personally, you know. But we all have situations where we have felt pressure from outside forces. We've all had to deal with uh, a feeling of desperation as outside pressures squeeze us. I, I was, oh my goodness, here's your Lord of the Rings reference. It's not even in my notes. <laughs> Things that pop in my head. I was telling Chanel that sometimes, you know, when pressure is applied, I can feel like the scene at the towards the end of Return of the King where the leader of the ringwraiths, the Nazgul, is stabbed in the face by Eowyn with that sword, and he crumples. And I've always loved the way they, they filmed that. He just he crumples. He just, like a, like a tin can or something that you crush between your hand or something, he crumples up. And sometimes that's how we feel as pressure is applied, right? We feel like that scene where like, we're just kind of being crushed into a little ball. That's what David is feeling as these outside pressures are are coming in and uh, afflicting him. And even some of the pressures that he's facing are actually coming from inside as well, not just external places. But David says in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The meaning of this word soul that we looked at last week, actually, from Psalm 24, is one's essential being. David is saying that he has trusted the Lord with his essential being. Unlike those in Psalm 24 who present themselves to nothingness, David has presented himself to the Lord. And his hope, his trust, were in God. David requests that his hope in the Lord would not leave him to be put to shame. In the biblical world, the idea of being put to shame was to be humiliated for trusting in the wrong deity or the wrong object of faith, something that would... um, Bring them victory or, you know, maybe you're a farmer and you needed rain and you put your trust in a certain deity to a false God to bring rain. To be put to shame would be to uh, be seen by the public as having put your your trust, your essential being, into the wrong thing. So when it doesn't rain and you've been worshiping a specific rain God, you would be humiliated publicly. But David has trusted the Lord. His hope is in the Lord. It's, it not only ca- This idea not only carried shame upon the person trusting, but it also would have carried shame upon the one that they were trusting in. David's use of this, though, is not to cast doubt on God's faithful- faithfulness, but actually to make a statement showing that he knows because he has placed trust in God that he is secure, that he will not be put to shame. And he says this in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. The emphasis here is not on the one who is trusting, but on the God who is being trusted in. David is stating that Yahweh does not allow those who trust in him to be shamed. David's hope in the Lord will not bring shame upon him or the Lord. The Lord will not allow that to happen. Now, there may be scorn. There may be mockery. There may be persecution. There will be insults. But it's not because the Lord has failed in some way. And I think that's important for us to, to grasp with this, the idea of being put to shame in our context. As we, as we look at this, we might say, well, I've, I've felt shame, I've felt scorn, I've felt mocked by people for what I believe. Ultimately, for the believer, there will be no shame because we have not trusted in nothingness. We will be vindicated because God will not let his word fail. So we we believe despite the mockery, despite the insults, we persevere. And you think of Noah as he built the, the ark for over 100 years. He suffered mocking and insults all the time until the rain came. So in this season that you're in, maybe you are experiencing some of this. You might feel the insults and the mockery, but God will vindicate because you haven't trusted nothingness. You've trusted him. In verses 4 through 7, David makes his need known. His need is for guidance and forgiveness. David's request shows us that he's not so much focusing on the source of the problem, but the source of the solution. We'll look at the solution more in a bit here, but for now I just want to highlight that David's prayer is about two things. First, guidance. David is seeking God for direction. David is faced with many things all at once. Many decisions are before him, but he's dependent on the Lord for direction. And he's also asking for forgiveness. And the way that this is worded, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, leads me to believe that David is feeling guilt over previously committed sins that he has likely already confessed to the Lord. David was a man who... Loved the Lord. He wanted to be near the Lord. And he would have done the things that the Lord had commanded with the sacrificial system. He had, he had obeyed God in those areas. But yet he had a sense of lingering guilt. And he mentions this need for forgiveness three times in this psalm. Verses 7, 11, and 18. Does David need to be forgiven for the same sin three times? No. What is rising out of him as the pressure mounts is a sense of guilt over these past actions. Assurance of forgiveness is a very slow-going process for most believers. Now, it's not that forgiveness is slow. Forgiveness is granted in an instant upon repentance and belief. But our ability to be persuaded of that forgiveness is slow. David was struggling to move forward because he was feeling the guilt and perhaps dwelling upon the consequences of his past actions. See, our actions will have consequences. We are When we've confessed and repented, we are forgiven. Those sins are as far as the east is from the west. But there are real consequences for our actions in this life. Relationships can often be damaged by sinful actions. For some, there are legal consequences, which may follow for a long time. Does David receive an answer to his pleading? Does he receive guidance and a removal of the guilt that he has felt? I believe the answer is yes. And I think that we really see that unfold in how he portrays his belief in who God is in verses 8 through 15. David, in this section, confesses his faith in who God is. What does David believe about who God is? He believes that he's good, that he's upright, that he's merciful, that he's loving, and the friend of those who fear him. So he is trusting, because of the mercy of God, that his transgressions will not be remembered. And what we're seeing really is a live play-by-play in David's life of the fight of faith. He is trying to believe despite his unbelief, what he feels or what the enemy might bring up in accusations. He is believing despite those things. David is trusting that the good shepherd of Psalm 23 will lead him and guide him in the paths that he has for David, even if those paths lead through the valley of the shadow of death. David is trusting God's sovereignty and providential hand to lead him on the right paths, whatever they may be. He's trusting God to remove the feelings of guilt and the accusations of the enemy. These two areas that David needs answers in, guidance and forgiveness, he is trusting God for those things. Because ultimately David had this relationship with God. He knew God. He knew his character and his ways, as we'll see here in a bit. Excuse me. Finally, in verses 16 through 22, after confessing his faith in who God is, David tells God how he feels. And David's heart is really exposed here. He's truly casting his fears and his anxieties upon the Lord. You can hear the vulnerability in his words. He says that he is lonely and afflicted. He says his troubles are enlarged. So he's talking about his distress, his affliction, and his trouble. You really see his vulnerability here. David's prayer in Psalm 25 is not a linear march towards victory over a problem. You know, we often talk about uh, the Psalms almost like a linear progression. You know, David states his problem, he states his belief in God, and he states his victory. But here it's more like a winding spiral. He kind of just kind of keeps coming in and out of uh, the situation. He moves in and out of the emotions that he's feeling, the fear that troubles him. But he places it all under his belief in who God is. So it's okay to feel these feelings. So often we, we try to like suppress them as, well, that's not, that's not a good thing, so I need to keep those you know hidden or something like that. It's okay to feel these pressures. It's okay to work through the emotions. And that's what we see David doing in this psalm. We can cast our struggles onto the Lord as well. We may not have the same physical enemies that David did. We may not have the same pressures that he did, but we certainly have enemies and we certainly have pressures in our life. And so, therefore, I think we can truly see ourselves in what David is going through. He speaks about things, again, that maybe we haven't faced, but we can definitely relate to the need and the fears that he is exhibiting. So we need guidance. We need freedom from guilt. We need assurance, from, uh, assurance of forgiveness. We feel lonely and afflicted and need to be reminded of the grace, mercy, goodness, and steadfast love of God and the friendship that we have with him. Throughout these first 25 psalms that we've looked at, we've seen in David a person who has recognized his own weaknesses and his sin. We see that he has recognized his need for grace and forgiveness. He's looking beyond himself to the coming king, the truer king, his own offspring, who would be his savior. And as we consider ourselves in this, let us see our need of Christ as well, the one that the Psalms lead us to. So this prayer is an encouragement to us to come to the Lord with our cares and concerns. It's not meant to be a formula or a pattern. Like I'm, I'm not preaching a message to say, take this Psalm and every single day you need to pray in this pattern. And I'll write a book on it and make millions or something. I've discovered the secret formula. No. No. But it is good to remember who our God is when presenting our needs and our feelings to him. Why can we be vulnerable like David here in this psalm? Because of who God is and what he's done. And so let's dig in a little bit here to God's character. So knowing God in his ways. I purposely divided this message this way to show us the psalm first from David's perspective and our own perspective. But you can't really understand the depths of what David has in sight here. Without seeing the God that he has in sight. When we find ourselves in David's situation, assailed with adversity, needing guidance, or dealing with guilt from past sins, this psalm can serve as a reminder for us to consider who God is, his character, and his ways. So, what do we see revealed about God's character in this psalm? As we've already seen, David declares who God is in verses 8 through 15. But even as far back as verse 6, he began to speak of God's character. In these verses, we see that God is merciful. Verse 6 says, remember your mercy, O Lord. Now this word, mercy, is an interesting word. It's connected to the idea of a mother's womb. And the word is taken to mean the feelings of a mother toward the child within her. And that's a very interesting thing. you know. Especially you know, very apropos in the Berg home at this moment. God is usually described in masculine terms in the Bible, but His mercy is described in a motherly way. And honestly, this is something that us guys probably struggle to understand the the concept here of loving something that much, uh, you know, because we're just we're not we're not equipped for this. But this word that gets translated as mercy, you know, in the English we we probably pass by it. Um, maybe even at times a little callously. You know, we, we think of its meaning, but maybe we don't necessarily connect to it the way we should. And it's more than just compassion. It's, it's a love that a mother has for the child that's growing within her. A mother who would do anything for that life that's inside. We love and have compassion, certainly, but, you know, us guys, we struggle to maybe grasp the the depth of God's mercy in this way, when, when we view it in this, this light. God is merciful. He is full of mercy. This deep, tender affection that he has is not just an action that he does. It's actually part of his very nature. It's his character. This is who he is. Nehemiah 9.31 Nevertheless, in your great mercies, You did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now think about the meaning of the word mercy that we just looked at. And as you read that text, in your great mercies, in the love that a mother has for her very own, for the life growing within, that intensity of an affection, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. It adds just a little bit of depth to it. By his nature, continuing on, God is both good and upright, or just. Everything that God does is an expression of his goodness. Mark 10, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to the rich young man. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Isaiah 30, verse 18. We see here how God is upright or just. He's perfectly fair in how he treats his creation. It says, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. We also see in this psalm God's steadfast love. And this theme of the character of God has been seen over and over again in the Psalms, and it will be continued to see over and over again in the Psalms. It's not just these first 25. But this is, as Mike has shared with us, his has said. This love is more than just uh, what we think of when we think of love, right? It's not just ooey-gooey feelings. This is a loyalty that, uh, that is based on his very nature. He is a faithful covenant keeper, even when we are not. And in 1 John 4, verse 8, we see that God's nature is love. That verse says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, we don't worship love. We worship God. But we can only know love if we know God. We can only know that love because he loved us first. This love is so much deeper than the love that the unbelieving world knows. Like I said, it's not ooey-gooey, warm, fluffy feelings. It's not me first. It's not how you make me feel. We have a really good description of love. And therefore, I think a really good description of God in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Which is a passage often used in wedding ceremonies. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So this is not the type of love that the world knows. This is not what all the popular movies are about. Paul shows us even further in Romans that the love of God is most clearly seen. Most clearly expressed in the death of Christ. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the reason for the death of his son was God's great love for us. Our sin made it necessary. Our sin was so deadly that the only way that it could be fixed was the death of the son of God. But it was love that drove him to do it. What we think of God's character will determine the demeanor of our lives. It will determine the way that we walk. I, I love listening to Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish preacher. And uh, I, I just, I don't know, I love his accent, so I love listening to him. But he shared this example that I think really helps drive home the point of why knowing the character of God is so important. He said, if a child has disobeyed, you know, sinned against their father in some way, you know, done some some act of disobedience and the father forgives that child. What must that child know of their father in order to be persuaded of that forgiveness? That beneath the words of forgiveness is a forgiving heart. So you can only know that God has a forgiving heart by getting to know him. You can only get to know love by getting to know the Lord. And we get to know him and his character through the scriptures that he's given us and through the Holy Spirit inside of us. Romans 8.14 shows us that um, all who have believed, all those who are children of God, have the Holy Spirit inside and are actually led by the Holy Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what we think of God will determine how we interact with him and his people, and if a God, if the God that you serve is a God of your own making, maybe money, power, uh, those things will dominate your heart. The, the things that you worship, even if it's nothingness, like we saw in Psalm 24, those things will determine your, your way of walking, determine your life. They'll dominate your life. For believers, often one of the struggles that we have is that we perceive God to be almost like an ogre. And maybe it's our own perception. Uh, from reading them, you know, reading the scriptures, uh, with wrong views or from teachings from our childhood. But the, the thought of God in that form will, will dominate our, our lives. It will dominate the way that we approach God, the way that we approach people, the way that we, uh, even treat our own family. Sinclair Ferguson again, he said, you will carry the odor and atmosphere of whatever it is you think God is like right down to your fingertips. So it sets the course of your life. So that's why it's so important to see God's character in the Word. It's so important to know what His character is like because it will influence our decision-making, it'll influence how we treat one another, everything. But David knew more than just God's character, he knew God's ways. David sought guidance, and that is probably the most persistent question that believers have as well. What do I do about this? Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? Where should I work? In fact, there are many, 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 many books written about this. I can suggest with good conscience probably about two of them. These are all very important decisions. But we will not know the way each one of these things plays out. You know, when I married Chanel... I had no idea that after 15 years we would be living in New York with a second child on the way. I had no idea that's how that would play out. So, you know, if, if, if you're looking for, you know, some neon sign to light up for you or something like that to determine that, you know, you're, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That's not how it works with our decision making. Rarely does God speak to us to tell us a direct answer in each one of these things. But we can know his character and we can know his ways. I've often used this as an example with regard to marriage. I've been asked a few times, like, you know, who should I marry? I'm waiting for God to, you know, like speak this out loud. Um, I can remember a handful of couples that dated for a very long time and they just wouldn't pull the trigger on it because they just were waiting for that audible voice in the middle of the night. But there's only two occasions in scripture where God tells a person whom to marry. One is Hosea. And he's told to marry Gomer, the prostitute, as a sign to Israel of their spiritual adultery. And the other occasion is when God speaks to uh, Joseph and tells him to take Mary as his wife and that the child she was carrying was the Son of God. I've always said, unless God is specifically telling you to go marry a person as a sign to the rest of the nation, or your wife is carrying the Son of God, I don't think he's going to audibly speak to you that you shall marry so and so so don't go looking for a name to be spoken audibly rather get to know the character of god get to know his ways his ways are how god interacts with you the ways he interacts with his people trust the lord to guide you in your decision making seek insight from other believers you know you have a family of believers here seek some wisdom seek the scriptures If you're seeking to marry someone, uh, are they a believer? Are they walking the same path that you're walking? Are they walking the direction you're heading? Is the job opportunity good for you and your family? Trust the Lord to lead you. Pray about it. Seek him. And then make a decision. What are some of the ways that we see in this psalm uh, of the ways of God. What are, what are those ways? We see that he will not allow those who trust him to be put to shame. That it is those who have believed in the one whom he has sent that will not be publicly humiliated for trusting in nothing, nothingness or emptiness. People may reject us and despise us. We may be persecuted, slandered, all these things. But in the end for the believer, we will not be put to shame. There will be vindication. We also learn, as David did, to trust his timing. David says in verse 5, for you I wait all the day long. Nobody wants to learn patience. We all kind of hedge our bets when we pray for patience, don't we? I need patience, but I don't really really want to pray for it. But as we learn God's ways, we learn to wait because God's timing is not our timing. We see that God has a purpose in affliction. David is trusting God that he has a reason and purpose behind all that he is going through. In verse 10, David writes, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. This means all the paths, even the ones that are difficult, painful, even the ones that are the valley of the shadow of death. They're from the Lord. As we saw last week, all that God purposes will come to pass and his purposes are for our good. And as difficult as it can be to see in the midst of affliction, God is with us and there is a purpose. And I don't say any of this to trivialize suffering because it all absolutely matters. Your suffering the things you go through, it matters. But I have a rock solid confidence that this is true because it is what the scriptures tell us. And because the Holy Spirit bears witness, and because I've experienced it enough times in my own life to know that God is with us in this, and that none of the suffering we go through is meaningless, that it matters, and that all of God's purposes will come to pass, and that they are for my good. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, through 3-7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Also, he writes later in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, a passage that has, I don't know, become maybe one of the most dear passages to me. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What we see in these two passages is that God comforts us in our affliction and will use the sufferings we experience to then in turn comfort others when they suffer. What we go through is shaping us not just for our own life, not just for our own walk, but so that we can be a blessing and a minister to others as they share in sufferings themselves. God has a purpose and a plan. But as well, God has uh, other plans in our suffering. He has other purposes in them um, that we may not see until heaven. We may not see all the purposes and all the plans for them until we arrive in eternity. And when he says that they're, they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory and he says that our afflictions are light, he's not trying to diminish them by any means. He's just trying to show us a heavenly perspective to show us that what awaits for us in glory is far more than we can begin to comprehend as we go through these things here in this life. So as we learn God's ways, we learn that he has a purpose in our affliction, even when we can't see what it is. Now, we can't cover all of God's ways in a single message. A study of God's character and his ways would be inexhaustible. How do you even begin to fathom the God who created all things? How do you even begin to know his character? Well, we look at his word. But that study would, would take forever. But there's one more thing I want us to see this morning, and that is his forgiveness. God is a forgiving God, he is just and he is holy. But his love compelled him to send a way for forgiveness, to be granted, and for justice to be met. In Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising again, ascending to the Father's side, both love and justice were poured out. And forgiveness could then be freely granted. So David struggled with forgiveness. He struggled to feel forgiven. And we struggle struggle with this as well. We will often hear the haunting voice of the accuser reminding us of our sin. Remind yourself of God's forgiveness. Take these feelings back to the Lord. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, he says, to do this, to take these things back to the Lord, is as if to stand on the edge of the ocean of God's forgiveness and let the waves of pardon and free grace and forgiveness and love wash over you until you realize My sins are all forgiven. The forgiving God relentlessly pursued David. He pursued you and I as well. Today the forgiveness of God is available to you because of the great love seen in the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross for our sin. So believe on the one whom he has sent. And experience the forgiveness seen throughout scriptures. God's guidance comes to us through knowing who he is and his ways, and he is transforming you by the renewal of your mind, which happens as you believe the good news of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean decisions will be easy, but as you know God's character and his ways, you can trust him to lead you. Pray for wisdom and make a decision, knowing that you have the mind of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2.16, and that the Holy Spirit is leading you in all paths. As we conclude this series, Psalms 1 through 25 have pointed us to Christ. In the course of this series, we've heard much about finding refuge in Christ. We've heard about the steadfast love of God seen in Christ and God's covenant faithfulness despite our sin. And we conclude with the theme of this series, Psalm 212. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Believe in Christ. Find your refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many ways you reveal your character to us and you show us your ways. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures which show us who you are and how you've worked. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit within us who shows us uh, the paths to take and lights our steps. Even though you don't show us all the results of every action, every decision, we know that you are guiding us every step of the way. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who have wisdom to impart. Lord, help us to make use of these things. Lord, as we get to know you more, as we begin uh, to dive deeper into the the waters of trusting you, Lord. I I just ask that there would be great grace and mercy in that, and that you would continue just to take us deeper in that relationship, take us deeper in trusting you. Give us eyes to see your ways, Father. We thank you for the love that you had for us in sending Christ. Help us to trust, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.